dancing all over the place. Come on, there it is. There you go. Okay. Zayin, Matic, like a pickaxe. Food, cut, nourish. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night I remembered your name, O Lord, and I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. 64? No? Oh, I moved it. Okay, sorry. That was me. I, I was doing two things at once and not paying attention. I was listening but not paying attention, which happens. Okay. Um, wow, we got some prayer requests today. I think he's out of the water, but uh, Doug over in Ireland has gotten hit by that giant storm that was over there. They were in the direct path of it, and so... I do think that they've made it through okay. I've heard from them a couple times today, and they said that they it, it diminished enough where it, it shouldn't be dangerous. But we'll keep them in prayer. And then um, Mike has a very serious life issue, very serious. And uh, so just pray for Mike. He doesn't want to give any more information than that, but he's asked for that. And then Sean's sister, Kathy was taken off of life support. We prayed for her a week or so ago, and uh, she died, I guess, last night. <laughs> and then um, Diana in Canada lost her husband, John. And so we want to keep Diana in prayer. And then Freda, right down the road here, I heard from her. She's she's doing okay. She seemed very uplit, up, you know, upbeat in her email, but she's uh, she's got all kinds of problems and she just you know she needs our prayer so keep fred in prayer when you pass by just remember that and then finally i heard this today and i've never met or even talked to any of the moderators i had nothing to do with moderators on youtube it, what it is is you're on youtube and apparently they've got like people that post on there while we're talking you know people on the side and then there are people that i think sergio picked people as moderators and so they just make sure nobody's cussing if they do they block them and stuff like that so i never talked to these people other than doug was or is a moderator but other than that i didn't even know but i got a uh was informed that one of the moderators named andrew and apparently he's a very nice guy really really good compliments about him yeah he says uh He's got cancer and he really needs prayer. He's, uh, they say he's very upbeat. He never complains about these things, nothing like that. But uh, we want to keep Andrew in prayer. And I got to say, I mean, I had no idea. And so I got to thank not only him, but all of the moderators, because mm -hmm. I don't know these things. You know, Sergio set something up and, and uh, I know that uh, uh, they have, you know, moderators that do this and that, but I didn't I wasn't aware of this at all and if I was I would have brought him up a long time ago so we'll go ahead and pray for them as well and uh, I think that's all the prayer requests today let's do that now Heavenly Father uh, you've heard these requests and you know the other ones that have been emailed where people just want to be remembered without their names and uh, so Lord you you know those people you know who has uh, submitted prayer requests and Lord just uh, what a difficult world it is, the trials that people face and the difficulties that we all uh, have in our lives. I would ask that you would just help these people that we've mentioned to uh, be comforted in their affliction, their losses, their sicknesses, 
And uh, we want to thank you that if Doug and uh, his wife are out of danger, that uh, we want to praise you for that because uh, it was a big storm in the Atlantic and apparently it's uh, diminished enough where people should be safe. But Lord, uh, we just ask that you bless this time together and this uh, this meeting and that your word would be handled properly. And if it's not, if there's something that is incorrect, that people would be led to an understanding of that so that uh, they would not be led down a false path. But uh, Lord, we just thank you for the wonderful chance to get into your word and to share it with others and uh, for this ministry that you've put together out of your own wisdom. And we thank you for it. And we praise you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. How you doing there? Good to see you. Good, how are you? All right. Um, let's see here. We, uh, Oh, I didn't bring it. Okay, that's all right. I was going to read this day in Christian history, but we'll just get right into the Bible. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we start this week. We did verse 1 last week. Yeah, We're going to start with verse 2, but yeah, you might as well just start right there and read that. My brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And that verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. Hold firmly. To the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Okay, good stuff. Let's see here. We got uh, 15 verse 2. Okay, the difficult part of Paul's words have led many to assume that he is saying, one, our continued salvation is dependent on a work of our own will, and two, that salvation can be lost if one fails to hold fast to what is preached. So we'll read that again. It says, um, by which you also are saved, meaning the gospel, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, this verse is used as a denial of the doctrine of eternal salvation. This is not the case. Charles Ellicott notes the idea here is not as implied in the English version, that they were converted and yet that heretofore no results have followed from their belief. Rather, Paul will explain exactly what he means in verse 11, which says, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. There has been belief and there has been forgiveness because of the gospel message. Paul's intent here in verse 2 is similar in meaning to what he will say in verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And so the best avenue to look at verses 1 and 2 together and then analyze verse 2. Moreover, brethren, I declared to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In verse 1, the gospel was preached and was received. It is also the truth, as Paul says, in which you stand. This is the gospel by which you are saved, Paul says. The words are saved indicate a done deal. It is moving from Adam to Christ and the spiritual rebirth birth which was anticipated since the fall of man. From there it says, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. The essence of this difficult portion is speaking of a possibility, not a reality, that someone heard and didn't believe. The message didn't sink into their minds in order for them to hold fast to it. It is being given as a possible scenario for someone who sat among the believers and he has noted that they received the gospel and didn't bind the truth of the gospel to the saving of their soul. However, for those who did, the gospel is perfectly able to save and to keep on saving, as Paul says, unless you believed in vain. These words, again, are not saying that someone first believed and then didn't believe. 
Instead, it is like verse 17, which I cited a minute ago, a hypothetical statement. In essence, yes, you believed, but the message that you believed isn't true, and therefore you aren't saved. Same context kind of as verse number 17. All right. So Paul is attempting to get the Corinthians and thus us here in this church today and all other believers throughout the church age to wake up to the fact that our very conduct in the church is to be based on the fact that we are saved. If we are, we have a hope which is grounded in reality. What Paul is doing here, before I go on, is you have 50 people in a church and they're all sitting there and they're given the gospel message and some of them simply hear it and they don't receive it. They don't believe in it. That's the type of thing that he's speaking about there. There are people that didn't believe when others believed. He's speaking to a group of people. If it is grounded in reality, then we should act as if it is so. Chapter 15 is taken on a new direction, but it is still an orderly move from chapter 14, <clears throat> which highlighted the disorder within the church. We have believed in vain, and if so, then our conduct doesn't matter. But if we have believed, and we have believed rightfully, then our conduct does matter. But we have not believed in vain. Instead, we have believed in the gospel, and therefore our conduct should be based on that. We see that if you're following the one Peter commentaries that we're doing right now, it's exactly what Peter's saying. He's very consistent with what Paul says here. You're a saved believer. Your conduct should match your belief in Christ. It would be contradictory to be otherwise. Now, talking about eternal salvation, I bring up the point all the time that somebody is sealed upon belief. You believe and you receive the Holy Spirit, and that's a guarantee. But there's the matter of predestination, which Paul speaks of. Predestination says that God foreknew those who believed and that he chose them from before the creation of the world. Now, people will debate, is it that God chose them actively or he chose them knowing what their choices would be passively? We've gone through that and it's pretty obvious in scripture that it's passive, that God waits until we believe knowing that we would believe, which doesn't negate free will in man at all. We choose to receive Christ and then we're saved. But the fact is that Paul does say, and he uses the term predestined in his writings, and it's a doctrine which is developed by theologians over the centuries, to be predestined. If somebody is predestined for salvation, and God knows everything in advance, then it's obvious that salvation is eternal, because God would not predestine somebody to be saved if he knew that they were going to be unsaved. Right. Just logically, all you have to do is think about things from God's perspective. You don't have to insert yourself in your own uh, you know, failings into every single doctrine, because God already knows that every single person here and every person that's ever lived fails. He knows that. He knows everything that we're ever going to do. God would not, I'll say it again, he would not predestine somebody to be saved if he knew that they were going to later be unsaved, because then he would be predestining them to be unsaved. God doesn't work that way. So please get your theology right about eternal salvation. When difficult verses come up, there's always an answer which matches what the line of the truth of the Bible is concerning eternal salvation. So life application. If you were saved by the blood of Christ, you are saved by the blood of Christ. Three. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul will now review the gospel which I preached to you. That's his words, which he mentioned in verse 1. This is not all inclusive of his teaching, but it is, as he says, what I delivered to you first of all. 
This is an idiom which is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 33, verse 2, and 2 Samuel 5, verse 8. It is the placing something before other things. His words, then, are those which are of paramount importance in understanding the work of Christ. It needs to be considered that this letter is written about 25 years after the time of the resurrection. It's about that, okay? We dated it, I think, at the beginning of the uh, book. But it's about that time, 25 years later. At this early point in Christian history, these tenets were passed on, understood, and held in the highest regard as points which were to be communicated during a gospel presentation. What he writes here closely matches the words of the Apostles' Creed. It should be noted that a portion of what he will state is not recorded anywhere in the Gospels. For that reason, he says, that which I also received. These words are a claim of divine inspiration. This then is what he is referring to when he speaks in the book of Galatians chapter 1. He says there, Verse 11, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right. The first point of his first things is that Christ died for our sins. Christ wasn't just a martyr who did a good deed in giving up his life for another person. Rather, he came with the specific intent and purpose of destroying the sinful state which, in which man exists, and which has been inherited in all men since the fall of man. Christ's death was an atonement for sins committed and an expiation of those sins, carrying them away. Expiation is like to carry away, all right? Never to be held again against his people. Okay, if you want to understand expiation, all you need to do is think of the scapegoat. Now, on the Day of Atonement, they have two goats. One dies for the sins, one carries the sins away. They're both pictures of Christ in their own right. But the scapegoat, the sin is laid upon him, and it's taken out into the wilderness, and it's left to go, all right? And so the sin is expiated. It's carried away from you, and it's never to return again, all right? Now, they have traditions in Jewish writings that the people would take the goat out and make absolutely certain that this goat never came back. They'd push it off a cliff. That's fine. The Bible doesn't say to do that, but they may have actually pushed it off a cliff. And that's a sure way of saying this goat is not coming back to us. Okay. But that's just an extra biblical thing that the, the rabbis teach. But regardless or not, the symbolism is all that matters. The thing is taken out into the wilderness and it's let go. Okay. Expiation of sins. It's the carrying away of them and they're never going to be held against you again. Christ died, <coughs> excuse me, in place of us, which is a vicarious offering. <coughs> Vicarious means that somebody is living out something for somebody else. If you follow somebody on, you know, a blog and they're traveling around the world, you are living their life vicariously. You're seeing the mountains that they see. You're seeing the swimsuits that they buy and, the, you know, all the things that they do. That's living vicariously. Christ died vicariously. He did it in place of us. He's doing something for us that we did not do for ourselves. Okay. So that we could be reconciled once again to our creator. Now, you got to understand what Christ did. If You'd have to really go back and watch all of the Leviticus sermons to really get a, an idea because every single offering in there, every one of them points to Christ in one way or another. But under the law, you have got the uh, idea of what's called substitutionary atonement. This person sins and the Lord says, if you come down to Jerusalem and you make this offering and you can put your hands on top of its head and you confess over it your sins, the priest slaughters it. 
the animal dies, they collect its blood and they splash it up against the altar and it is proof that the animal died, okay? And so the Lord says, I will accept that. Your sin is forgiven because an innocent died in your place. Not all of those animals never took away sin. Not one of them. Not one person in Israel was forgiven by that, except as it anticipated Christ. And that's, can anybody tell me where in the Bible it says that explicitly? Hebrews chapter 10, it says that, yeah, the bulls, blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So you say, why did they do it? Because it was all in anticipation of Christ. So I'm not making this up. It's right there in the Bible. The blood of bulls and goats did not forgive those people of their sins. God did, anticipating the sacrifice that they went through, which only looked forward to Christ. So until Christ came and did his work, those people actually were not really forgiven. But he said, I will forgive you. You are forgiven. And he did that year after year on the Day of Atonement. But it was only because it anticipated Christ. And that's why he said, you have to be very careful with these things. Do what I have instructed you. Everything, the blood has to be taken to a certain place for a certain type of sin. It has to be offered in a certain way, etc. Every single one of those animals anticipated the work of Christ. But the thing is that they all anticipated the work of Christ. It's not just that on the Day of Atonement, that one animal offering picture Christ. This one did, this one did, that one did, this one did, every one of them. The high priest went in before he sacrificed for the sins of the people and he offered a sacrifice, a sacrifice for his own sins. And it was a different animal. It wasn't a goat, it was a bull. The bull pictures Christ. We saw that in last week's sermon where the person annulled the uh, vow that the woman had made and the word was par. Well... I'm sorry, parar. Well, the uh, bull is a par. So it's an annulling, and it was annulling his sins. So he has to have his sins canceled before he can sacrifice for the sins of the other people. Every single thing under the law anticipated Christ. And here's where the fallacy of hyperdispensationalism comes from, is because those animals pictured our remission of sins as much as the Jews' remission of sins. We are not given a different type of salvation than what the Jews were given. We're given exactly the same expiation of sin, exactly the same atonement for sin, exactly the same death of the same high priest, because there's how many covenants? There's one new covenant, right? There's an old covenant, which is obsolete in Christ. He fulfilled all of those types and shadows, and he is now the high priest of the new covenant. So every single thing points to what Christ would do for man. The Jews were under law, we were never under law, but the same principles apply to all people. We cannot come before God without the atonement, without the expiation, without the, uh, you know, all of the different offerings that were pictured in the Old Covenant. Okay, so. 10-4. Ten, 10-4, ten thank you. Hebrews 10, verse 4. Okay, so we have, um, <clears throat> I've already read that there. How you doing there? Okay, so the first point of the first things is that Christ died for our sins. I said that. And then we had the vicarious offering so that we could be reconciled once again to our creator. In Christ's death, our sins are nailed to his cross. And we died to sin with him. Where is that nailed to the cross? Colossians 2.14. Thank you. Very good. Okay, if this didn't occur, then we would remain in our sins forever separated from God. Once again, Paul speaks of the atonement the nailing of the uh, sins to the cross, etc., etc. It's the same symbolism, whether you're Jew or Gentile. It makes absolutely no difference which. This is where the hope begins, is being reconciled to God, okay? And so this is where Paul begins with his first things. 
And this death of Christ was according to the scriptures, according to Paul. It must be remembered that there was no New Testament at the time of Paul. There were only the Hebrew scriptures. Some of the Gospels may have been recorded, and Paul was in the process of writing his epistles, but none were considered as scripture at this point. Therefore, this is an explicit reference to the fact that the atoning death of Jesus Christ is referred to in the Old Testament. We have Old Testament scriptures. That's the only scriptures that existed when Paul wrote this. And so what Paul is saying is that according to scriptures means the Old Testament. That is an explicit reference to the fact that these sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And sure enough, it is found in every type and every picture imaginable. It is also found in specific writings such as the Psalms and in the book of Isaiah. These truths may have been veiled, but upon completion of his work, they became clearly understood. All of scripture speaks of the person and work of Jesus Christ, all of it. Concerning these first things that Paul speaks of in this verse and the verses to come, the pulpit commentary notes seven points that are worthy of being repeated here. Here's what the pulpit commentary says. One, it is the completest summary. Two, it refers to some incidents which are not mentioned in the Gospels. Three, it declares that the death and resurrection of Christ were a subject of ancient prophecy. Four, it shows the force of the evidence on which the apostles relied and the number of living eyewitnesses to whom they could appeal. We'll see that in a verse or two. Five, it is the earliest written testimony to the resurrection, for it was penned within 25 years of the event itself. Six, it shows that the evidence for the resurrection as a literal, historical, objective fact was sufficient to convince the powerful intellect of a hostile, contemporary observer, speaking of Paul himself, because he was hostile to the gospel, and yet he was converted. And seven, it probably embodies and became the model for a part of the earliest creed of the church. So that's the pulpit commentaries, seven points on what Paul is speaking about right here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Life application, Christ died for our sins. Let us not continue to live in sin, but to live in Christ, holy and undefiled. And as I said, we'll go there really quickly just so you can see what I'm talking about. Holy and undefiled. That was today's verse, I believe. Maybe it's tomorrow's. 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, um, I'll take you down to, uh, let's see here. Um, let's see, we'll start at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. I think that was today's verse, if I remember. Verse 16, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. They in perfect agreement. Paul and Peter are in perfect agreement, as Peter will explicitly state in 2 Peter when he gets to his thoughts about Paul. But where is be holy as you are holy recorded? Anybody? Leviticus, Leviticus chapter. It's the heart of the book of Leviticus. I said it in the sermon. You fell asleep during that part, didn't you? It was 1144. Yes, I'm just picking on you, Burke. Okay, 15.4. 15.4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Okay, anybody have a problem with that? Okay, I'm glad to hear it. I don't want to hear any objections on that. The death of Christ is confirmed in his burial. 
Christ died, he was buried, okay? Just as it was the burial of Lazarus. The previous verse noted that Christ died for our sins. If this is so, then that means he died in a sinless state because only a sinless perfection can take away the sin from one who has sinned. This is something that the Old Testament writings implicitly demonstrate. Everybody got that? Christ had no sin of his own. If Christ was born to a man, as modern liberal scholars like to say, there was no such thing as the virgin birth. Okay, if that's true, guess what? We're all condemned. We're all condemned because you cannot, you cannot resolve the issue of original sin, which came through Adam and which transfers to every person through the male and every person has a male and a female parent, okay? We all inherited sin, every single one of us. From the moment that we were conceived, Psalm 51 says that we were conceived in sin, okay? If Christ was born of a human being, then we have no Messiah and there is no hope for mankind. And that means Jew or Gentile, there is no hope at all. The incarnation, everything rests on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If she was not a virgin, then that would be called into question. That's why he chose a virgin who did not argue against it. She said, I'm the Lord's handmaid, and your will be done, basically. And so the proposition was accepted, okay? And God entered into the stream of humanity. The divine God united with human flesh. That is the only possible answer for our sin death. So that takes care of the first part. Jesus is born without sin. He is now qualified to take away our sin. Everybody got that? Because we already talked about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. One thing can take the sin of another if it is without sin. It's innocent. And that's why all of these animals were said, lamb of the first year, denoting innocence. It's to be perfect without spot or blemish, denoting no sin. Okay. Those were types of Christ. So he is now qualified to take away sin. But there is a second part to Christ's ministry. And that is to prove if he is capable of taking away sin. You can be qualified and still not be capable, okay? He has to prove that he is going to not only be born without sin, but he is going to live without sin. And that is the purpose of the Gospels, is to record the life of Jesus Christ to show that he never sinned. He never committed any sin at all. And so he was qualified to die for our sins. He was capable to die for our sins because he fulfilled the law without sinning perfectly. You got a question? It's good to note that uh, Mary's blood never mixed with Jesus. I've heard that and I disagree with that. He had human DNA. It, now, when you say her blood never mixed with it, we can have a, a person that has uh, a um, uh, AIDS and the child doesn't get AIDS, but he literally inherited her chromosomes. He inherited. The issue isn't whether... He, People will say that because they want to separate Christ and say that that almost goes to the doctrine of uh, another prophecy teacher. There's a guy out there that teaches that Jesus was created in Mary's womb. Okay, that's not what would happen at all. She is a human being and her DNA transferred to him. But sin does not travel through the woman. Sin travels through the man. That's the picture from the very beginning of the Bible all the way through. And that's why she is, he would not be fully human if he was created in her womb. She'd just be a receptacle and God would have created him. And then we can get right into the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which the Archangel Michael, which is a created being, is actually Jesus and he died for her sins. 
that is not what the incarnation says. This The incarnation says that he is fully human and fully divine. The way that he did not inherit the sin was because he is the seed of the woman, not of the man. So she is a human being and he received her DNA, but he did not receive the taint of sin because his father is God. So that's the error that people make when they say that. I've heard that before, is that he didn't inherit any of her genetics or her genes. That's incorrect because he is a fully him. And that's the whole purpose of what? Adam went to Seth. Seth went to this and to this yeah, and then yeah, yeah. all the way down. And then you get the daughters of Lot, the story of them. So now you've got Abraham, you've got Sarah, you've got Lot, you've got the two daughters. And uh, actually uh, Lot's wife would be included in this too because the daughters, all of these people went down the line and then it gets to uh, Isaac and it gets to Jacob and then it goes to Judah. And then from Judah, it goes to the union of Judah and Tamar. All of that is there for one purpose, is to show that he bears that human line all the way through. If he was created in her womb and didn't bear her humanity, then those stories would be absolutely pointless. They would be with no merit at all, but it is to show that he came from every one of these sinful unions of people, fathers sleeping with their uh, his own two daughters, and both of them come into the line of Christ. And then uh, a father goes to a prostitute, or he thinks it is, and it's not, it's his own daughter-in-law because he wouldn't give her his third son because the first two had died. And so once again, it was an inappropriate union, which also comes to the point of the book of Ruth, because at the very end of the book of Ruth, it has the genealogy. And the very last two verses of the book of Ruth, there's a genealogy there. And you think, what is that there for? Why is that there? There's about 10 different reasons for it. And one of them is to show, because that was an illicit union, according to the law of Moses, even though it happened before the law of Moses, there had to be 10 generations before that next person could enter the, uh, the assembly of the Lord. And guess what? It goes from Perez down to David, the 10th generation. And so everything is pointing to the actual human nature of Christ all the way through scripture. And so you're correct that he did not inherit sin, but it is not correct when people teach that he did not inherit her humanity. He did 100% of it because he is fully human. If not, then he is not qualified to take care of our sin because he's it has to be a like for a like, which is the point of the sacrificial system. It says the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin because it's not a like for a like. It's only a type of Christ. So everything is like for like in this particular aspect. And that takes us actually takes us back before the story of man itself. Because what does it say in the very first chapter of the Bible? Everything reproduces after its own kind. Everything, with one exception. And actually, it's not an exception. It's a merging. Man becomes man, becomes man, becomes man. But in one time, God united with humanity. And so he is fully man because everything reproduces after its own kind. But he's fully divine because everything reproduces after its own kind. Everybody see that? Okay. You're correct, but I wanted to qualify that because we don't want to make the mistake that he was not human. Like I said, there's one prophecy teacher out there that teaches that. It's a heresy. It's an outright flat heresy to say that he is not, that he was created in the womb of Mary. He's the second created man. Absolutely not. He is, that's the whole point of that genealogical listing is to show he inherited all of their baggage on himself. And yet he did it without any sin because he had no human father. So the uh, virgin birth of Jesus is the linchpin at the beginning of his life. 
Then his life under the law is the linchpin to show that God is capable of redeeming us from our sin. And then the end of his life when he went to the cross is the linchpin for the removal of our sin. And then the burial is the linchpin to show that he was truly dead and therefore his death does qualify for the removal of the sin. That's Paul's making this very logical argument here. And so that's what we're following along with is that Christ met every one of these demands and he met them perfectly without any, any uh, missing of anything. Every type and every shadow that we see in the Old Testament follows through to one person in human history. And, you know, I was watching a video. I sent it to a, a friend of mine, Mark, that uh, we were talking about an issue. And uh, I said, watch this video. It's, you know, the one for Israel. I don't know if you've seen any of them, but they just sit down a Jewish person that has met their Messiah. And they, they do very high quality videos and they do lots of them. If you ever just want to be built up, you can watch one of them. They're all kind of the same. They're just the individual's testimony of who they are, why they didn't believe in Christ, and what changed their mind and how they came to Christ. And I posted one on Facebook a day ago, which I sent to my friend who is not on Facebook. And it uh, was, uh, he's a Jewish Israeli. So he, he meets both qualifications there. People can't say, well, he's, you know, He's Jew, and he's an Israeli. He's a psychologist, so he's no dummy. And he talks about the best-kept secret among the Jewish people. And what is it? It's Jesus. And he says, oh, I, you know, I, I never believed that, blah, blah, blah. And how did he come to his faith? And he's a reasonable guy. He's an intelligent guy. And they always do this with these videos. They're very professionally done. And like I say, if you're ever just, you know, I just need to get away for 10 minutes. Click on one for Israel and watch any one of their videos. You will be blessed. I guarantee it. Like I say, if you watch them all every day, can we help you, ma'am? There's my wife. And she made it. She hasn't been feeling well, so I'm glad to see that she's here and she's had a sore throat. And I haven't gotten it yet, but uh, she, you know, she's a nurse and she brings these things home and she does her best to not give them to me. But, you know, when you're living together and touching all the same things, you never know. So anyway, good to have you here, Miss Garrett. Okay, let's see here. So we were, um, I'll start at the top again. Christ, it was confirmed in Christ's death. Our sins are nailed to the cross and we die to sin with him. And as I said, if this didn't occur, then we would remain in our sins forever separated from God. That would be, there. there's no hope without the death of Jesus Christ. There's zero hope because God is holy and we are unholy. And an infinitely holy creator cannot have any fellowship with a fallen being. One sin breaks the whole law, and the whole law is God's standard. And so Christ came and he fulfilled that law on our behalf. He gave up his life in it, and in doing so, he annulled the law, so we are no longer imputed sins, 2 Corinthians 5.19, and God has reconciled the world to himself through that act. Thank God for Jesus. So this is where the hope begins, and so this is where Paul begins with his first things. I may have read this already, but oh yeah, I did. We'll go through it again. And this death was, oh wait, I'm in 15.4, aren't I? Yeah, aren't you? Yes, you yes, I am. So I was going back up to the top and okay, here we go. Um, if this is so, speaking about um, Christ died for our sins, then that means that he died in a sinless state because only sinless perfection can take away the sin from one who has sin. And this is something that the Old Testament writings implicitly demonstrate, okay? We just talked about it, the sacrificial system and the animals and etc. Okay, babies were often sacrificed by pagan nations. You see it all the time in the Old Testament, sacrificing to Moloch. That's right. Okay, they sacrificed them here and other 
nations did as well. And guess what? Israel picked up on it and they started sacrificing babies. Why would somebody do that? Because they're pure. Because they think that they're pure. You said they are pure, well, but they think that's, they're that's pure. That's that, Yes, that's right. And, you know, people sacrifice babies all the time in America, too. And they do it for the same reason. They may not know that that's the reason they're doing it for. They, it's a convenience. I don't want to have to have this bother or anything else. But in the end, they know they have sin and they're trying to get rid of it somehow. Okay. It's guaranteed this is in the back of their mind somewhere. Okay. Babies were often sacrificed by pagan nations and even by wayward kings of Israel in an attempt to expiate sin. That's explicitly stated in one of the accounts where a king lost in a battle and he went and immediately took his firstborn son and sacrificed him. But there is sure proof that this did not work. The babies did what? After they were sacrificed, they did what? Nothing. Nothing. Well, what does that mean? They were toast. They were toast. They remained dead. dead. Right. The babies remained dead. If the wages of sin is death, and we know that it is, as the Bible proclaims, then if a baby who was sacrificed for another sin was sinless, the baby would resurrect. That's all there is to it. The baby would resurrect. But this doesn't happen. Instead, they bore their own inherited sin from Adam. Psalm 51, verse 5, right here. It says Psalm 37, 42, 44. We're getting there, 51. And then it says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. There is no sinless perfection to be found even in a mere babe. Thus Christ came, born of a woman, but, of his, father, but his father is God. And because of this, the line of sin was cut. Right? Where was that picture in the Old Testament? Circumcision. Circumcision. The male organ is cut signifying the cutting of sin. That was given to Abraham specifically for that reason. It was to picture the covenant of the t removal of sin that God would do in Christ. It's the cutting of the male, okay? Circumcision is fulfilled. Nobody needs to be circumcised anymore. We do it for health reasons. We do it because cultural reasons, whatever. But Paul is so adamant about circumcision not being performed on a person to be right with the law, because it is mandated under the law of Moses as well, that he says what in the book of Galatians? If you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ profits you nothing. Nothing. Because you are trying to merit God's favor, and Christ has already taken away the sin through what this <coughs> circumcision pictured. It pictured the cutting of the sin line. There's only one person that can do that. And so circumcision is not needed anymore. Like I say, if you are circumcised because your mom wanted to do it because you're healthy or because you're of a culture that does that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But people at Paul's time and to this day are told that you need to be circumcised or you cannot be saved. That's in the book of Acts. You're going to see it. And Paul speaks explicitly against it in the book of Galatians. He says, Christ will profit you nothing. You are bound to the whole law. Or he says in one version, you are a debtor to the entire law. If you go and have yourself circumcised because you think that you need to do it in order to be right with God, you have set Christ aside and he means nothing to you. And that's with any precept. I don't care if it's eating pork or if it's, you know, whatever precept you find under the law of Moses that was a type and picture of the coming Christ, which there are a lot of them. What is What were they told to do with their garments? Not blend the, uh, and have the... That's right. They were to have no blending of the garments, no linen and wool. Okay. 
picture in Christ. And they were to have the tzitzit at the end of their talit, which is the uh, thing at the end of it. And it had a blue cord in there. Okay, that was a picture of Christ. We went through that in that particular sermon. Everything points to Christ. Those are tenets that are under the law. And if you say, well, you're walking around without a tzitzit on your garment, you can't be saved because you've broken one of the uh, 613 precepts of the law of Moses, well, then all you need to do is say, well, guess what? You're not going to Jerusalem and sacrificing for your sins, are you? So you're as lost as I am, buddy, but I got Christ and you don't. So there you go. Okay. There is no sinless perfection to be found even in a mere babe. And so Christ came of a woman, but his father is God. And because of this, the line of sin was cut. There's no inherited sin. The God man was born sinless and he was born under the law. The record of the gospel shows us that he was not only born without sin, but he lived perfectly and died without sin as well. Only he then could be an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of fallen man. Again, what does it say in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7? I bet you Burke's got it memorized. Hang on a second here. I got to find Micah. Give me a, what's that? That's exactly right. What does the Lord require of you? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, which pictured Christ? With calves a year old, which pictured Christ? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, which pictured Christ? Ten thousand rivers of oil shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Those things are all fulfilled in Christ. And so what he says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Well, how do you do that? You do it by calling on Christ. That's how you do that. So God would be pleased with none of those things in exchange for the sin of our soul. They only were types and pictures of the coming Christ. Burnt offerings of calves or rams are in a different category than man. Oil, even 10,000 rivers of oil cannot carry away sin. And even the fruit of our body, meaning our children, are unqualified because of inherited sin. But Christ could and he did. He died and he was buried, as Paul says, thus providing sure evidence for his death. He died. He was buried. After that, we are told that he, praise God, he rose again on the third day. I'd like to qualify that right now because I always get these emails. I got one today about Jesus being crucified on a Thursday or a Wednesday. It's wrong, okay? He was raised on the third day. I know it says 24 hours or three days and three nights, and people don't understand what that's saying there, and so they run with that, and it says it has to be 72 hours and blah, blah, blah. If you want the, the paper that I have on it to show you that is absolutely incorrect. He was crucified on a Friday. He was resurrected on a Sunday. It says 21 times explicitly in the New Testament that Christ rose on the third day. If you want the analysis, I can send it to you. There's no way around it. All you need to do is look at the word preparation day, which is placed into all four gospel accounts. And that will show you very clearly Christ was resurrected on the third day, Sunday, Saturday, Friday. Okay. Anyway, that's just a little side thing. If you want that, I'll send it to you. It is very clear. Don't get caught up in those crazy things where he was crucified on a Thursday or crucified on a Wednesday. It is incorrect. It is a very poor handling of scripture. We've gone through all of the typology. We went through it a week ago and we're going to see it, I think, one more time in numbers. Maybe not. But anyway, a couple weeks ago we did that. Um, let's see here. Um, he rose the third day. The death of Christ was a one-time 
for all time occurrence, never to be repeated, which also takes care of the doctrine of anybody or not doctrine, the, the, no, I'm thinking of UFOs. Okay. If there's sentient life on other planets, then Christ would have had to have died for them. Okay. There would have to have been many Christs on many planets. There are no UFOs. There are no outsiders coming to this planet. If you believe in the God of scripture. Okay. God made the earth unique. It is the center of focus of the entire redemptive plan. It's the earth. Everything points out from this place. Actually, it points out pretty much from Jerusalem, but we'll just go with the earth. And you look out, and there are something that stars form. What are they called? Constellations. If you go just a little away from the earth, guess what? They're not constellations anymore. They no longer have the same reference. But the Bible has constellations re referred to it in the Bible. The bear, Orion, okay? He talks of them in the book of Job and elsewhere. And so earth is the reference point. Nowhere else in the universe. God created everything in this universe which is centered on Earth. And I'm not saying that the Earth is the center of the universe. That's, you know what, we may be, we may, you know, be uh, one little point on a galaxy that's on a spiral of that galaxy way out here. And it may not be the center at all. It may be off to the left somewhere. But the theological center of the universe is Earth. And what, on the right. What did I say? Left? We don't want to be on the left. Okay, that's right. Okay, we're on the right side of a galaxy that's spinning around. Okay, whatever. But he has designed the universe so that it is able to support life on this one planet. Now, that's not saying that there isn't life on other planets. There might be life on a billion, trillion, billion different planets, but it is not sentient life. God can do whatever he wants, and he can do it wherever he wants. I have no idea if there's life on other planets, but there is not sentient life. Christ came to this earth to die for sins, and that pattern would have to be repeated with every sentient group of people in the universe, and the Bible doesn't teach that. So I don't believe in UFOs, and I will never accept the premise. I just It doesn't match our theology in Christianity. People get in all types of crazy things talking about this and that. I'm not going there. The Earth is the center of this As if this universe. isn't phenomenally enough. Oh, yeah, if this isn't enough. You know, people are always looking for extra things to fill their life with. But I got to tell you what, if you just pursue the Word of God. Last Sunday, I have not been able to get that sermon out of my head. I was excited for weeks before it, and I gave it. I went home, and I was excited after giving it, and I've been thinking about it all week. It is literally an astonishing passage. Just do it again. Uh, we could. We'll just do it again next week, and it'll be better next time. Less ums and ers and ahs. Okay. Um, so anyway, that's that's where I stand on um, uh, UFOs. And if you disagree, please don't send me an email. I, I, and if you believe in flat Earth, don't send me an email. I, I just don't want to talk about those things. It's not reasonable. Okay. So um, the death of Christ was one time for all time, and his death was necessary to atone for our sin. However, just as the burial was sure evidence of his death, the resurrection of Christ is the sure proof of his sinless death. Everybody got that? Because the wages of sin is death, and Jesus had no sin of his own. Then it would be impossible for him to remain dead. Remember I asked you about babies a few minutes ago? If you sacrifice a baby that's innocent, what's going to happen? It's going to come back to life. Because the wages of sin is death. And none of those babies came back to life, proving that they have inherited sin, which is a doctrine taught in the Bible anyway. Okay? And that is found, anybody know where that says that it was impossible for death to hold Jesus? Acts, Acts chapter, what? 224? 224. I think you're right. Acts 2. 
and verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Not possible. He died for our sins. He did not die in his sins. And there's a galactic difference between the two. He died for sin, not in sin. Okay, so there you go with that. Acts 2 says exactly that. Death could not hold him because death had no jurisdiction over him. Jurisdiction means that the wages of sin is death. That is a legal contract, basically. And when you die, it's because you have sin and death has hold of you. And Paul is going to address that explicitly at the end of this particular chapter. I'll read you right now just to give you a taste of what's coming here in a couple weeks. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. You got law, law, by, the, by law is the knowledge of sin. And so you violate the law, you get sin. Because if there was no time that God said, you could, if he said to Adam, you can eat of any fruit of this garden, go out and have a good time. And Adam ate of that particular fruit. Would he have died? No, because there was no law. Sin is imputed through law, and when law is broken, sin enters the world, and death results. If he had said you, if he did kill him because of that, without giving him the law, then it would show an unrighteous God. But God is righteous, and he said, you can eat of any tree of this garden, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, because on the day that you eat of it, you will die. But you see that? So you have the law, and you've got grace. They're both right there. It's your choice. You can either eat of the tree of life and get the grace of God, or you can eat of the tree of the knowledge of, because by law is the knowledge of sin, the tree of good and evil. All right? And then from there, you die. And they chose death. They chose the law. It was our choice, not Adam's. Free will. What's that? Free will. Free will. I said our choice, not Adam's. I meant our choice, not God's. Yes, it was free will. Okay, so um, Acts chapter 2 saying exactly that. Death could not hold him because death had no jurisdiction over him. A girl emailed me with that insight on the two trees, the law prior to the grace. And I thought, you know, I'd never really thought that through. But it's such a simple thing when you, when you think about it. He gave him two trees and he said, pick which one you want. You can either choose the law or you can choose death. And the law comes before the grace. Everything fits when you think about it. In approval of his sinless life, atoning death and confirmed death through burial, God the Father raised him from the dead. It was a one-time event and a forevermore event. The Lamb has overcome, and all of this is, as Paul again notes, according to the Scriptures. The only Scriptures that existed were the Old Testament, and therefore all of this was told in the Old Testament. None of this was done in secret, and all of it was already anticipated by the very words which established the law that Christ came to fulfill. That is why Israel was without an excuse. They had no excuse. And that's why Paul says that even to this day, I said it on Sunday, when they read the law of Moses, their eyes are veiled. Why? Because they haven't come to the New Testament to read about the fulfillment of what the Old Testament pointed to. And until they do, they will never understand it. You can never understand the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, without understanding the work of Christ. 
you cannot understand it. You can read it and you can get a mental ascension. Oh, I see you have to do this sacrificing. I see you have to wear this certain thing and you can't sow two types of grain in a single field. And you can get the mental understanding of that, but you cannot understand why he gave that. It is a book that makes no sense without the coming Messiah. It makes zero sense. Anybody that says, oh yeah, I've read the Old Testament. I believe it and I accept that and I don't need Jesus. They're a fool because they have no idea why those stories are in there or what the prophets are saying. Without Jesus, it is a convoluted book that makes no sense at all. You have to have Jesus to have the veil come off of your eyes. And that's not saying that it's convoluted because it's just a hodgepodge of stories. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the Old Testament. I'm saying it is incomplete without the New Testament. That's why I say it's convoluted. It's because without the New Testament, it makes no sense. Okay, not diminishing the Old Testament at all, but it is part of a whole. Okay, so there you go. Um, let's see here. Um, yeah, the uh, lamb is overcome. Paul says it's according to scripture. Christ came to fulfill the law. These things are revealed in that same law, crying out in anticipation of his fulfillment of them. Life application. Christ died to take away our sins and to grant us eternal life. The very nature of the transaction shows that it is one, fully sufficient in and of itself, and two, eternal in nature. Trust in Christ, rest in Christ, and anticipate in your heart the soon coming again of Christ. I can't wait. I can't wait. There's nothing keeping me here. My dentist yesterday, I was talking to him. He is a Christian. Then we were talking. He says, how are you feeling? And, you know, and uh, so I'm fine. And uh, he looked at the chart. The girl, when she took my blood pressure, was all concerned. She says, you got, you're, there's something wrong with you. You've got low blood pressure. And I said, eh, it's usually pretty low anyway. She said, this is really bad. And the doctor came in and he looked over the chart and he said, you got really low blood pressure. He said, if it was any lower, I couldn't do anything because there's a, a, a he, he's bound by law to a certain blood pressure. You can work on somebody. He said, you've got to get that corrected. And I said, or I can go to be with Jesus. And he looked shocked. I said, what, what is keeping me here? I can't think of anything that keeps me here. I don't want to be here if I don't have to be. I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to go jumping off a building, but I am ready to be with Jesus. And he's like, I guess you're right. And what else is there? He's the source of all goodness. We've got goodness here, but we've got a lot of badness too. I can't wait to have no badness and all of the good. So he, he thought about it and he had to agree, but there's nothing keeping me here. And uh, he, the cure he said for my low blood pressure is no coffee and no Cokes, which I don't drink Cokes, but I can't do the coffee. I'm sorry. But he said, drink water. You got to drink more water because I'm just not whatever hydrated enough. And I already know that because I have these four part-time jobs and one of them is killing me right now. And so I'm just completely exhausted, but I need to get it done. I've only got a couple more days and I've got a lot of work to do. So I'll try to remember to drink water. I drank a bottle before we had class. I said to Burke, I said, I better do this. I don't want my, my dentist to think I'm not paying attention. Anyway, 15.5. And then he appeared to Peter. And then to the 12. Okay, let me make sure that's what this one says. Yes, and this one says, and Typhus. he was seen by Cephas, that's right, and then by the 12. That's exactly right, because Cephas is the Aramaic name of, and when he's addressed as Cephas, guess who does it? Paul. Anyway, um, after the resurrection and as a proof of the resurrection, Paul now gives, uh, Paul now gives, which were at his time still living, witnesses by name who were trustworthy to speak of what they saw. He says that he was seen. That's Paul's words. It is a common word, upthe, 
which demonstrates that an actual appearance took place. He was literally seen. Anybody know, hear anything in the word opthe? Ophthalmology? Yeah, okay, there you go. First, it is noted that he was seen by Cephas. This is the Aramaic form of Peter's given name, and it means the rock. It is used nine times in the New Testament and only by John and by Paul in their writings. John uses it in one, uh, John 1, verse 42, where he's given the name, which he explains that the name was given to him by Jesus. Paul uses it eight times in the books of 1 Corinthians and Galatians, including his name in the Aramaic form, lends credibility to the testimony because it would have been the common form of address in Israel at that time. This is why he's doing that. Aramaic was the commonly spoken language then. Further, noting him as the rock was intended to show the stability and reliability of his testimony. It is to be noted that women actually appeared to Jesus before Peter did, but Paul excludes their testimony, probably for two reasons. One is, at this time, woman's testimony did not bear the same weight as that of a man. He is establishing the reliable testimony and wanting nothing to interfere with that. That's why he's doing it. He's not saying there's anything wrong with women or anything like that. He's just simply using the tradition and cultures of the time to establish his authoritative baseline for Christ. Okay. Secondly, in the previous chapter, he noted that it was shameful for a woman to speak in church. Should he now designate these women as witnesses of Christ's resurrection, they may then have been asked to verify that testimony. If a church were to call them for that witness, then it would cause them to violate the very words he had just written. Rather, Paul sticks to witnesses that were culturally acceptable as reliable and also acceptable to be speakers to the congregation. After noting Cephas, he then shows that Jesus was seen by the twelve. Judas was already dead by then, but the term twelve is a, is a title designating the apostle and their office, okay? It's simply, it would be, well, maybe I give an example here. Anyway, thus it would be better rendered in the capitalized form as the 12. It's basically designating the office of the apostles, the 12, because there were 12 apostles. Even if one is dead, you would use the term, okay? And the reason why is because 12 in the Bible signifies, anybody? No. 12 in the Bible signifies perfection of government. Anytime you see the number 12, there will be something related to government order and structure in there. 12 apostles, 12 disciples, 12 this and 12 that. So 10 would be uh, 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 perfection, as you said, but 12 is the number of governmental perfection. Okay, so um, let's see here. Uh, Judas was dead and Thomas wasn't around at this event, and yet John calls them the twelve just like the term, the 12 sons of Israel. It is a designation for the collective whole, okay? Life application, God's word is sure. It is reliable in every way. And if you have doubts about a portion of it, research the matter and pray for guidance. The Lord will alleviate those doubts as you honestly seek to know the truth. Burke. Would this be a affirmation of Matthias being appointed? Well, Yes, but it's it's not really speaking in that way because he, it says he was seen by the twelve and Thomas wasn't there. Okay, well, he was there. He was later. But what I'm saying is other people saw him in between that. Yeah. Right. Okay. So he's speaking about the time when he shown. He was seen first by Peter and then by the twelve. Okay. One of the twelve was already dead. 
Matthias wasn't considered in that. And so he's, like I said, he's making a point that the 12 is speaking of a title, not so much a, a number, an actual number. Like okay. the Eagles. Yeah, absolutely. Cowboys. The Eagles or the Cowboys. Right. But when we say the 12 sons of Israel, they're not always there. Some of them aren't being included in what's being said. And yet it is a designation, the 12 sons of Israel. Okay, and that's and actually there were how many sons of Israel because he adopted two? 14, right? And then one of them is taken out because he set apart his holy to the Lord, in the, which is the Levites, the Levite clan. So now there's 13. So if you look at it, it's the exact same thing that you have with the apostles. You've got 12. You've got one that's replaced, which makes 13. Then you've got Paul, which makes 14. So it's exactly the same, the same pattern. Yes? If that would, verse 7 would prove what you're saying, after that, he was seen of James then. James all then, all, that's right, then by all of the apostles. So the, exactly, verse 7 will actually explain that. Very good. Okay, 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Okay, that right there is maybe, it's, it's not for sure, but it's maybe one of the top, one of maybe the top point that settles the resurrection of Christ is that verse right there. 500 people and most of them are still alive. This is 25 years later. You could not trust maybe a couple of guys that hung around with Jesus, all right? The fact that they gave up their lives later for Christ is a sound point, but that's not actually recorded in the Bible for most of them, okay? But this right here is something that if there was any doubt at all, that could have been called into question immediately, and they could have gone to any one of the people, and they could have said, is this true? Any one of them. This verse right here is actually a really, really important inclusion in the Bible. After noting that Jesus was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve, Paul gives us words which should be remembered by every Christian willing to defend the truth of the resurrection account. He says, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. This is the only recorded instance of this occurrence in the Bible, but it is of the utmost importance concerning the reliability of the resurrection testimony. Where this occurred is unknown, but it could have been in the region of Galilee, where much of his ministry occurred. This is recorded in Matthew 28, verse 10. Wherever it was, it is recorded, and therefore it could have been challenged. But even more than that are Paul's next words. Not only was he seen by 500 brethren at once, but he notes of whom the great part remain to the present. As Paul made this claim, any person who wanted to challenge it could have done so by asking for names or locations. If they did and he declined to give them, then the claim then could have been refuted. But no such refutation exists. Further, if he gave a name, that person could have been checked with. Who then could have identified others and so on? If the story wasn't true, it would have quickly become evident because lies tend to break down among false witnesses. All right, let me make a note right here. In the end, in one way or another, the truth of this claim would have been easy to determine or to refute. Like I said, we don't know where this is. He popped into a house that was locked. He could have popped in to the Galilee. He could have popped down to Jerusalem. We don't know where this was, but it says that he appeared to 500 people at once, and that was a known fact at the time, okay? However, there is no such record of a claim talking about somebody going and saying, hey, I checked with this person, and he said it was true, and he said, you can check with John, and then John says, well, I don't really know because I was sleeping. He, I was in the same room, but, and, you know, like I said, it would eventually break down. 
There is none of that here. Absolutely none of that. The written testimony of Paul's words, therefore, stand as positive and irrefutable evidence that these 500 existed and testified to the truth of the account. Not only did the apostles, most of whom gave their lives for the gospel, testify to the resurrection, but so did 500 others. And finally, of these 500, Paul does note that some have fallen asleep. It is another sure testimony to the truth of the account. By noting that some have fallen asleep, he is granting that a portion of them could obviously not testify any longer as to what they had seen. It is another added point of credibility to the claim. As a side note, the Greek word for fallen asleep is echoimethison. It is where the word cometarium comes from, which means sleeping place. We translate it into the idea of a cemetery. For the Christian, there is no true graveyard where hope and life ends. Rather, there is the sweet place of rest until the day that we join Jesus with all other Christian friends. So there you go. One of our words comes from something that is actually right out of the Bible. It's a place of sleep. It's not the final resting place. It is a temporary resting place. Life application, if you have doubts about your faith from time to time, stop having doubts. The word is sure, and so is our hope. If Christ didn't resurrect, we have no hope. But we have all of this evidence that Christ did resurrect, and plus we have the thousands of patterns that we have come across in the Bible over the past 10 years or so, eight years, however long it's been since we started the book of Genesis. They tie in perfectly with what the Bible says is coming in Christ. Don't have doubts. Didn't... Um... Paul bring it up when he was in front of Agrippa as well? Yes, that's coming uh, later in the book of Acts. I'm sorry, in time in the book of Acts. Yeah, when yeah, he yeah, stood right. there, in, he was in chains, and he brought it up to Agrippa. And he said, I know that you believe the scriptures. And so there you go. I mean, But yes, this he did bring this up later in time, in the the sequence of time in the book of Acts. Yes. Right. I told the guy today, I said, I have faith because of facts. Facts, that's right. People say, well, you know, faith is uh, taking a step into the dark. Yeah. That's not it at all. There's no such thing as blind faith. It is a step into God's revealed light. That's the difference. We have something that we don't need to worry about. We have his light, which is right here. It is revealed to us, and we are stepping into that. We're not blindly accepting something. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses do. That's what Mormons do. That's what Muslims do. That's what Buddhists do. They are stepping into something that is dark. They're stepping into something that does not have any substantiation at all, no proof, and it's not of God. But we are stepping into something which is revealed by God, and it is revealed light. And so when we step into it, we are doing it not as fools, but we're doing it as people that have their eyes wide open. Very good. Well said. Go ahead. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Okay, that's uh, number seven. Okay, yeah, after that he was seen by James and then by all of the apostles. I was looking on the wrong page, which I do all the time. I'm always on the wrong page. All right, after that means after the appearance of Christ, first to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then to the 500 plus brethren mentioned in the preceding verse. At some time after these appearances, he was also seen by James. This is not James, the brother of John, who was already dead by the time Paul wrote this letter. Rather, it is James, the son of Mary and Joseph. Yes, Mary had other children. So much for the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virgin. It is not true. Okay, if you ever hear the uh, uh, term immaculate conception, that is not speaking about Jesus Christ. 
That is speaking about Mary being born without sin. That is a heresy, okay? That is not what Immaculate Conception is. People, I'm sorry, that is what Immaculate Conception is. People think that Immaculate Conception means something about Jesus. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It's a made-up doctrine from the Catholic Church. And then at the end of her life, they throw in, first they, and throughout her life, they throw in the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is refuted in Scripture. And then at the end of their life, her life, they say that she didn't die. She was assumed to heaven. So the whole doctrine of Mary is a false teaching, every single word of it. Okay, she is a secondary note in scripture, a secondary note. She's highly noted. She's highly blessed. And she said all uh, generations will call me blessed. And we do. But as far as context of scripture itself, she is actually a secondary note. Just like some of the apostles are mentioned one or two times and that's it. That's about what you're going to get out of that. So don't get caught into the Mary thing. Okay, but um, let's see here it's not james the brother of john who is already dead it is the james the son of mary and joseph the half brother of the lord and the leader of the council of jerusalem recorded in acts chapter 15. he's also the author of the book of james now this is disputed obviously there are people that dispute these you know did james the brother of the lord write james or is it another james etc but it is very well documented that this is the same person he's the half brother of the lord he is the leader of the church in Acts 15, so much for the doctrine of uh, the uh, papal succession beginning with Peter, because it didn't. But anyway, then we get to uh, the 59th book of the Bible, and that's the book of James, and he's the author of that as well. Okay, that's the standard understood idea concerning this person. Okay, um, he's the leader of the Council of Jerusalem. He is also the author of the book of James. Paul notes in Galatians 1 18 and 19 let me take you there we've already been to galatians once but it's a great book uh 1 18 and 19 then after three years i went up to jerusalem to see peter Cephas, and remained with him 15 days but i saw none other of the other apostles except james the lord's brother so there you go that's who it's speaking of there again why because he's a pillar of the church okay it was probably during this time when paul explained his commission to the apostles that James also told Paul that he had likewise been visited by the Lord after the resurrection. And that's why Paul is including it here. Because of this, he was qualified as an apostle. Otherwise, he wouldn't be qualified as an apostle because one of the requirements of being an apostle is to have seen the Lord, to have seen the resurrected Lord. Okay, Paul says that he was one born out of due time. He was seen by the Lord in a completely unique way. Okay, but um, let's see here. Um, like Peter's testimony concerning Paul's apostolic authority, uh, Paul gives the same concerning James here. In other words, the Bible weaves together a solid tapestry which provides us all of the assurance that we need to consider it as a reliable witness for the things of God. What I was saying is that in 2 Peter, Peter writes about Paul and he says that Paul's words are hard to understand, which many twist to their own destruction, but they are, and then he says, are basically on the same level as all of Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, they're divinely inspired. And what happened is Peter confirms Paul's ministry in his writing, and then Paul confirms James's authority in his own writings. And so everything weaves together, and if you pull one thread, the whole thing comes apart. It is a tapestry. It's a beautiful one, and we don't want to fiddle with it. Okay, so um, where are we here? Um, uh, do, 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 do. Yes, Paul gives the same concerning James here. In other words, the Bible weaves together into a solid tapestry, which provides us all the assurance we need to consider it as a as 
Steve noted a minute ago, a reliable witness for the things of God. We are looking forward into God's revealed light. We are not looking forward into some dark chasm that we're going to step out into and just, oh my goodness, I'm going to uh, make a leap of faith on this. We don't have to make a leap of faith. We've got the substantiating documents right here. Okay, finally, Paul notes, then all, by all of the apostles, all who are considered apostles beyond the 12 are who this is speaking of. When the visit occurred isn't noted, nor is it a specified number that is given. It is possible that these last mentioned might have been with Jesus at the ascension, just appearing to them this one final time, which is now noted by Paul. Life application, Paul's careful detailing of who Christ, who saw Christ after the resurrection is given to bolster our faith. We have every assurance that the account is true and it is accurate. And so remember where, where these words are right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and be prepared to defend your faith if it is challenged by a naysayer, okay? A couple key passages in scripture that are good to know. One of them is 1 Corinthians 15. It doesn't just deal with the death and burial of resurrection. It deals with uh, original sin, the transfer of it, the overcoming of it by Christ. And it deals with, believe it or not, begins with R, ends with apture. Anybody? That's right, the rapture. Okay, verse 15:8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one as to one abnormally born. There you go, born out of due time. I was citing that and then here it's the next verse. I wasn't paying attention. Okay, finally of those who had seen the risen Christ, Paul notes that last of all, he was seen by me also. Okay? Now I know, I get it almost daily, somebody had a vision, somebody saw Jesus or listen, that's fine. If people want to believe that, just believe it. That's fine. I don't believe those things because he says, last of all, he was seen by me. Okay. There's no need for anybody to see Christ. Now, as a matter of fact, it would disqualify the doctrine of faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's at least 10 clear verses in the New Testament, which show us that we are living solely by faith. We have the prophetic word. We don't need to see visions of Jesus. We don't need to have any of those type of things. If you believe that, that's fine. I do not teach that in this church, and I will not, unless he appears to me, and then I'll come and tell you, and you can all say, well, yeah, you're as crazy as the other people, whatever. But I, I do not accept that because it negates what the Bible actually tells us. So there you go. After that means the appearance of Christ to, uh, I'm sorry, finally, it's Paul is the one that last of all seen by me also. There is quite a bit to consider here. First, it demonstrates conclusively that what Paul saw was the same risen body which all the other apostles saw. If this were not the case, then how could he assert that Christ was actually risen from the dead? He could have been a mere ghost, as was the case of the ghost of Samuel the prophet in the Old Testament. That's in, I think, 1 Samuel chapter 28, the account of the witch of Endor when she raised him up, and it's very clear that it was him. Okay, rather for Paul to claim to having seen the risen Christ, it means that he was truly risen as a man. It wasn't some apparition or vision. This proves the claims, or it proves that the claims of cults, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, that Christ was born a spirit being, are false. He was raised in a body, not merely as a spirit. And we're going to go through this. As we go through 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to say that the first man is of the earth. He's uh, earthly. The second man is uh, spiritual. Not a spirit, spiritual. There's a difference, okay? We're carnal, he's spiritual. But he had a real physical body when he resurrected, 
okay? There's a giant difference, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have to deny the literal reading of Scripture in order to do that, because what did Jesus say to Thomas? Yeah, put your finger here, put your finger here. See, and then he ate with them. He says, a spirit doesn't have bone and flesh as I do. There you go, very good. So that confirms, and the Job's witnesses have to say, well, that didn't really happen. It's just they wrote that, but it's not really true. Okay, having noted this, he then proclaims that this visitation was not at all in a normal way. I think this is going to have to be our last verse. I'm not sure. The uh, term, as one born out of due time, is insufficient and does not convey the meaning of the original. This makes it seem like the timing of his meeting is the main issue. Rather, the state of the visitation is what he is relaying. The Greek word is ektroma, and it is rightly translated as to the abortive born. This word properly means abortion or stillborn. It is used nowhere else in the New Testament, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament and other Greek writings uses it several times to indicate exactly this, a stillborn. This is seen, for example, in, anybody know what book it mentions a stillborn? No, it begins uh, with J and ends with O-B. Anybody? Yes, Job, that's very good. Marvelous. Job 3, verse 16. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw the light? There you go. Okay, Paul's words, Paul's words indicate his state at the time of becoming an apostle then. The other apostles knew Christ in his earthly ministry and grew in knowledge during that time. They matured in their walk. When the resurrection occurred, they were surprised, yes, but they were also able to process it in a mature manner. Paul, on the other hand, saw Christ before he was brought to a state of maturity. Thus, he saw his status as one of the apostles as of one of exceeding unworthiness. As Vincent's Word Studies notes, he considered that he had the same relation to that which was worthy of the apostolic office which an abortion has to a living child. That's how he felt about his own position. Living child here, an aborted or stillborn child here, that's the right I have to this office. He looked at it completely like that, but God had grace on him. We could question then, how is this appearance and conversion pertinent to us in the church? Also, why did the Lord choose this manner of conversion for Paul, who is the one to set the parameters for the church age? The answer is found in 1 Timothy 13 through 16. Let's take you there. Probably 1 Timothy 1. I don't know. I, I didn't put the chapter in, so I may not have the right verses to give you here. 1 Timothy. We'll go to 1, and it's probably 13 through 16. But if it's not, I'm not going to spend all day looking for it. What's that? Um, yes, that's it. What was it? 13? Okay, yes. 12. Starts at 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which were in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Another verse which points directly to the doctrine of eternal salvation. Let me make a note here so that I know chapter 1, 1, 
13. I do that from time to time. I type and I don't check my own typing. So there we go. Um, let's see here. Paul's unworthiness coming forth to believe as an abortive child is a pattern to show us that the same great grace and mercy has been poured out on us. We can look to Paul and see that God truly cares about each of us, sinners though we may have been. Life application, we're going to have to end there. We've only got five minutes left and we can't finish another one. God called you into his light when you were in a miserable, unworthy state. Live for him now as one who is purified and holy. Act in a manner worthy of your new position in Christ. That's, you know, what Jesus did for us while I'm finishing up here is so astonishing. And, you know, you think about it and you kind of get jaded because Bible studies can be real uh, technical and you can go into all these things that, uh, uh, you know, in every minutia of the Greek word and you can do this and that. But if you just step back and you think on the basic level of what Christ did, and that's why listening to hymns are so wonderful. Is because you listen to the words of somebody that is overwhelmed by what Christ did in their life. And you can put yourself in those positions. And as you saw last Sunday, when I read the poem that I typed for between the two sections, I, I couldn't finish it. Because I understand, and that's why I like to do those poems. It redirects me during a sermon. Because there are times where you just are giving so much mechanical information. And it's important to know those things. Don't get me wrong. We cannot be sound Christians if we don't have sound doctrine. It is just not logical to think that, to think that you can just call on Christ and the rest of your life go to church and listen to music and call yourself a mature Christian. You need to know the mechanical things. You need to know the technical things. But you also need to step back and you need to think about the cross. You need to think about your own sin, all right? If people don't look at their own sin, then the meaning of what Christ did for them begins to fade because I'm becoming holy in Christ, and that was me. And so what do we start doing? We start pointing our fingers at other people that do the same things we used to do, right? But they're in need of Christ too. And so it's good to take a step back in the things of Christ from time to time. And I don't mean from time to time like once every two years. I'm talking about from time to time throughout the day and certainly throughout the week. You need to put yourself back into the position where you once were before you had Christ. Because if not, you're not going to be an effective evangelist. You're not going to have the compassion on people you need to have compassion on. But you look at what Paul did there. He said, Christ even had mercy on me. And so that's a pattern for you who were like me before. So thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you did for us when we could not do it for ourselves. And thank you for everything that the cross means, which is so vast and so astonishing that we've been reading the Law of Moses now for years, studying it one verse at a time, and we're not even close to finishing it. And every single verse seems to point to something that Christ did, or it's combined with other verses which form a picture of what Christ did. It's so wonderful. It's so marvelous to know that we have this sure word and that we are stepping into revealed light and we have a sure hope of eternal life in your presence because of the grace and mercy poured out on us by you through him. And so we praise you, we exalt you, and we just love you. Can't wait for the day you come for us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can I mention one thing? Yes. That uh, everybody that knows...